that we're going to be a sermon about the church. Because the more uh, persuaded we are about the importance of the church, and the more passionate we are about church, the more we'll be convicted of the need to increase and multiply the number of gospel churches in our city, in our communities, and in our land. So I want really just to look at the church with you through the letter of Ephesians. Um, it is a letter written by the world's greatest church planter, Paul, written to one of the churches that he had planted. And he is speaking, I believe, he's speaking in this letter about the connection that exists between mission and the church. This is a letter about a church on mission for God. And it's a church that's on mission for God because God himself is on mission in this world. And the reason that we as believers are passionate about mission is because God himself is passionate about mission. And uh, I'll say a little bit more about that as we kind of move through uh, the letter. Now, uh, on Friday evening, uh, my wife went out and uh, most of the kids were in bed and I was really tired and I decided the only thing I could be bothered doing was watching a movie. And uh, I was scouting about the house for a DVD that I hadn't watched before and I knew that my wife had been out and bought a couple of DVDs uh, a few weeks before. And one of them I hadn't seen, so I thought, well, I've never seen it, I'll watch it. And uh, it was a film called Only You. Uh, it's a romantic comedy, supposedly, with uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Marissa Tomai. And here was I, all on my own, watching this rom-com. Uh, uh, and I kind of wished I'd just got myself a brick and hit myself in the face with it. Uh, <laughs> It would have been more fun. Um, if only I'd seen a preview of Only You, I would know, and it was not a movie I was going to enjoy sitting watching on my own on a Friday night. Now, the, the church, uh, we're told in verse 10 of chapter 3, is God's preview of the future. What happens in the church today is a preview of what God is going to do for the entire universe tomorrow in the future. We're told in verse 10 of chapter 3 in Ephesians that God's intention for the church is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What kind of world do we want or dream of? That's a question that you can ask all kinds of believers. If you're not a Christian, if you're a skeptic, if you're unsure about Christianity, it's a question that you'll have certain opinions on. And those of you who are Christians will also have thought probably about what kind of world would I really like to live in? And when we ask people that kind of question, whether they have a religious belief or not, they tend to come up with fairly similar answers. That they would love to live in a world of beauty, a world free from natural catastrophe and disasters, a world free from crime and violence, 
a world of love and depth of relationship, a world of purity, goodness, and truth. And what the Bible teaches us is that one day Jesus will give us the world we all want. That that's what God is preparing for us in the future, and that to know and enjoy that world, then we need to follow Jesus Christ in faith. And if that's the world that God is creating through his son Jesus Christ as a consequence of all that Jesus has done on the cross, then God today wants to preview that world through the beauty of his church. He wants the church to be a demonstration of reconciled relationships, of love, of depth of community, of hope, of joy, and so on. All of those wonderful qualities of heaven should be present at some level and to some degree in the world today. And so when people look at the church, what they ought to see is a glimpse of the glory of heaven and the world should create in people, or the church should create in the people of this world a thirst for heaven and for Christ Jesus himself. I feel like the most dehydrated man in the world tonight. I took some decongestants from my sinuses and they've dehydrated me. I'm in a new church where I don't know many people and that makes me a little nervous and dehydrated as well. So I am really dry. So if I keep turning aside for a drink, you'll understand. (laughs) God's intention then is to use the church in the world to show his glory, to reveal his future, and to build his kingdom. And if we want to get on board with God's plans for this world, then what we need to do is to multiply gospel churches throughout our city and amongst our communities. And we need to be building gospel churches that will transparently and wonderfully reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that's a really important point because many of us don't really care about the church. Even people in the church don't really care about the church often. And there are different reasons for that. Some of us are simply very individualistic. We're inward looking rather than outward looking. And even though we come to church, church is about me and my needs and what I can get. Church is about making me happy and making me safe. And we're not that concerned about the wider Christian community. Now, that's a completely wrong way of looking at church, of course, because the minute you're reborn through faith in Jesus Christ, you are reborn into a family, the family of faith, the community of God in this world. And one of the lessons we learn in the book of Ephesians is that you can only be what God intends you to be as a Christian if you are part of a church. So some of us don't care about church because we care too much about ourselves. Some of us don't care about church, though, because we've had bad experiences of church. Now, find me a Christian who hasn't had a bad experience of church. We've been bruised often 
through broken relationships within the community of God. Sometimes churches are legalistic. Sometimes churches are controlling. Sometimes churches are even abusive. And all of that occurs, of course, when there is a shift in the life of the believer and in the life of the church away from the gospel and into religion and legalism and moralism. And as the church of Jesus Christ, there needs to be a continual process of repentance because we need to be humble about ourselves and our failings and our onward uh, tendency to drift away from the gospel and to, to the, the, the way in which so often we, we prevent Jesus Christ from being central in everything. Others of us perhaps don't care about the church, though, because we simply have fallen for the line that church is kind of irrelevant today. We live in a culture that really has abandoned the church. And so while we might think that church is okay for me and you and religious kinds of people, we have a kind of gut feeling that church means nothing and has nothing to offer to people who are non-religious. But church, of course, is the very heart of God's purposes for the world. And if churches are gospel-centered and culturally relevant, then the church will always speak in a powerful and meaningful way to the surrounding culture. And one of the great things about new, new churches and one of the great things about church planting is that when you start a new church the way Athel is in Leith, he can take time to get to know the community, get to know the people who live in Leith, get to know their values, their assumptions, their objections to the gospel. He can find out all these things about Leith, and then he can design a brand new church that will speak directly and in a relevant way to the needs of the people who live there. So church planting brings that huge advantage that new churches can adapt to new cultural situations and be more effective in evangelism. And as Christians with a love for the church, we need to have a twofold commitment. One is that in the long-standing established churches of our city that we will continually renew ourselves in the gospel and that also we will be committed to starting new churches wherever we possibly can. I think there are something like 140 or 150 churches in Edinburgh that I know of. I counted them through the, the Origins uh, website. They list about 150 churches. Now, in a city of half a million people, that's nothing. We could double the number of churches in Edinburgh easily and still have far too few churches to really reach the communities around us. And so the vision for church planting that we need in the church today, if we really care about our land and about Scotland and about Edinburgh, is not for a few new churches, but it is for hundreds and hundreds of new gospel churches that will have a transformational effect in their communities. And those churches will only be birthed if there are Christians like you and like me who are willing to commit themselves 
to making sacrifices of comfort, of time, of career, of energy, and so on. And really, wholeheartedly, getting involved in God's mission in our nation. I've touched a little bit on Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, God's missionary purpose for the church, which is through the church to declare his wisdom and glory to the world and to let the world see the great plans that he's got for this universe. And I'm just going to sort of whiz through the book of Ephesians with you in a sort of a, a really quick tour. To see some of the key features of the church that need to be present in every gospel church and that especially need to be present when we want to plant new churches. And uh, the first thing is in Ephesians chapter 1 where a key feature of the church is simply what I've mentioned already, that as Christians we are natural-born missionaries. The first uh, part of Ephesians chapter 1 introduces us to God's eternal purposes. In verse 4, we're told that the church, the people of God, were chosen in him before the creation of the world. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Now, what this tells us is that mission is not something that God just does, Mission is not something that God does. Rather, in Ephesians 1, we are being taught that mission is something that God is. Mission is an essential part of God's character. And chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians shows us the Trinity working in loving and humble harmony for our salvation. The Father sends the Son. The Son is willing to be sent. The Son gives himself to the cross for our redemption. The Father and the Son together send the Spirit into the world to make Christ's work fruitful and effective. This is the mission of God. And when you and I are born again through faith in Jesus Christ, what happens? Well, we know that as Christians, we are brought into fellowship with the triune God. We become part of his community. We begin to be renewed in his image and to share his nature. And if if God's nature is mission, and we share God's nature through faith, then our nature will also have mission at its heart. When you are born as a Christian, then you are born in to the mission of God. Uh, nearly 20 years ago, I got married. I met my wife when I was 18. She is uh, the love of my life, obviously, and uh, as beautiful today as she was when I met her as an 18-year-old student in Glasgow. And uh, after we started dating for a while, she invited me to come and visit her family. And uh, her family live in the island of Lewis. Her dad was a fisherman, Her older brother is a fisherman. Her younger brother is a fisherman. In fact, this is a family with only one theme, and that theme is fishing. And when I went and spent some time with them and got to know them, and I stayed there a couple of summers and so on, I found out that 
this one task of fishing was an absolute obsession. The, the older brother used to persuade the younger brother not to go to school because it was a waste of time. The family slogan was, think crab, think crab. That's all you need to think about is catching crab, filling the boat with crabs, selling it for as much money as you can. And uh, when I was with them, I soon found out that I was kind of roped into, like, we need a ton and a half of frozen bait. Will you go and get it? Or we're landing uh, a few tons of prawn and lobster at two o'clock in the morning in this corner of Lewis. Can you meet us there with a van? And being part of that family, you know what? I just got sucked into their obsession. And when you join God's family, you ought to really be sucked into God's obsession. And God's obsession is mission to a lost, needy, dying, hell-bound world. And if you do not share God's obsession with mission, then you are out of step with a living God. Somehow your heart is no longer in tune with God's heart if you don't care about mission. Because he is mission. And if you share his life, if you rejoice in Jesus Christ, then you will have a heart for mission. We are natural born missionaries, every single one of us. The second thing I want to point as we sort of flash through uh, the book of Ephesians is to go into chapter 2. We're talking about the nature of the church and the nature of the believer. We're natural born missionaries. But secondly, I just want to say we are people of knee-buckling grace, if that makes any sense to you. Knee-buckling grace. I've got a dodgy knee. Uh, occasionally, if I stand up too quickly, my knee gives way, and uh, you know, I have to grab something. And uh, the, when we encounter Jesus Christ in grace, our knees fold and we fall before him. Verse 8 of chapter 2 reminds us of this amazing truth. It is, by grace you've been saved through faith. Grace alone through faith alone, the way of salvation that we hold so precious in the church of Jesus Christ. Why does God work in this great way to save us? Well, in verse 7 we're told that it's so that in the coming ages he can show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God shows us grace because through that he can show the riches of his kindness and glorify his son, Jesus Christ. Grace alone by faith alone. This chapter, chapter 2, tells us of our deadness and lostness without Christ. Verse 3, we're told that we are following our own desires, following our own desires, the desires, the cravings of our sinful nature. If you're not a Christian, then you might think that part of the problem with not being a Christian is, you know, that you don't really know how to live the right way. You're not really able to do the right things. And that if you could do the right things, the right way, then you would be a better person. What the Bible teaches us, what Paul teaches us here is that our problem is not that we can't do the right things. It goes deeper than that. It's that we don't want the right things. 
that we desire what is wrong so often in our lives. Paul says our desires were the desires of dark spiritual powers. And the worst thing you can say about any human being is that they desire something more than Jesus Christ. And that's where our lostness lies. And that's where our spiritual brokenness lies. And that's, if you're a Christian who's away, backslidden from Jesus, that's where your problem lies. You desire something more than Jesus Christ. How horrendous is that? That the most wonderful, beautiful, glorious, magnificent being in all of eternity, Jesus Christ, that you can see things that are more desirable than him. And when we realize that we have loved so many other things more than Jesus, and when we see how much Jesus has loved us, despite that, when we see how Jesus has allowed himself to be crucified and broken, wounded, abandoned, crushed, and ruined under the judgment of sin, when we see that, then what should happen? Well, what ought to happen is that our own heart should be broken, that this is the consequence and fruit of our sinful desires. And the gospel humbles us because the gospel shows us how deeply corrupt we are and that we have nothing to show to God of our own goodness and that our only hope for forgiveness and for freedom from these desires that torment us and enslave us, our only hope for freedom is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, not by works so that no one can boast. God requires us to be humbled before the beauty and the wonder of the cross. The best Irish theologian I know is Bono. And uh, Bono wrote a song recently, uh, Moment of Surrender, I think it's called. It's on his last album, the name of which escapes me. But he says, at the moment of surrender, I folded to my knees. I did not notice the passers-by. They did not notice me. A man broken before God, oblivious to everything else. And that's where mission and ministry starts, in a heart won by the love and the beauty of Jesus, in a heart that is broken over its sin and lostness. And we have no mission without that gospel message. And so that's the gospel message that we need to be living day by day and renewing in our own lives day by day. That I am a lost, broken, needy, proud, vain, rebellious sinner. And all I have to hope in is in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. I'm going to move more quickly now, take you into chapter 4. And in chapter 4, what we see is the new community that God has created. 
that community, we're told at the end of chapter 2, is an amazing community because it brings together people who are alienated, who hate each other, who are hostile to one another. Through the cross, we're told in chapter 2, verse 16, we are reconciled to God and then to each other. And that creates a new community marked by unity and humble service. And that community has at its heart a, a drive to create holiness. I don't know if this is making sense to you, but try and stick with me for a moment. God creates an amazing new community. He takes people who are alienated from each other and he makes a new humanity out of them. He's showing his purposes for the universe. He's showing his intentions for the future. But this community, this community needs to really, in a kind of transparent and wonderful and unmistakable way, show the world around it that it is a new and transformed community. How do we show the world that we are a community that is transformed by grace? Well, we do it by maturing into godliness and holiness. Don't know if those are two things high in your agenda. Don't know if those are passions in your life. But you see, we cannot be God's beautiful bride, God's wonderful church in this world, transparent and great and attractive if we are not godly and holy people. If we lack godliness and holiness, then people will just see us as another bunch of hypocritical, religious, and distasteful people. People people aren't interested in religion, but they are interested in finding people whose lives are marked by the reality of God's presence. That's why godliness and holiness matter. And I used to think, you know, that holiness was kind of like climbing Mount Everest. And that it was this sort of struggle to the peak of perfection and that the Holy Spirit was my Sherpa. You know, he would sort of help me carry my burdens and my baggage and get me up the mountaintop to the place of godliness. But when I read Ephesians 4 about the body of Jesus Christ and the family of God, verse 16, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You can go through Ephesians 4 and look at various pieces like that. What I've come to understand is that holiness is a team game. It's not a solo ascent of Everest with the Holy Spirit's help. It's a team game. It's where we're all working together to achieve the same purpose. Personal holiness, uh, I think Tim Chester says in his book, You Can Change, which is a great book if you haven't read it. He says, personal holiness is a community project. Personal sin is a community problem. And we grow in holiness, how? Not by going off on our own and, you know, sitting in a corner with our Bibles and, you know, trying really hard to change ourselves. We change in community with one another as we build each other up, 
as we admonish one another, as we carry one another's burdens, as we love one another, as we speak the truth to one another in love, and so on. This is key in Ephesians 4 and 5, that we are creating a community of holiness through gospel community. And that's how you ought to be relating to one another in the church. And this brings us to my kind of final point here as we go through Ephesians and look at God's purposes for the church. We are natural-born missionaries. We've received knee-buckling grace that brings us on our knees before Jesus. We are a people united in as, as a team growing in holiness. Why? In order that we will be communities of light in the darkness of this world. Ephesians 5 verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in goodness, in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. Most people in our culture and our society are living in very dark communities. And uh, we understand that. We may not live in exactly the same circles as many of the people we do, but we know the horrendous uh, darkness that grips many people's lives. And what's Paul saying? Well, he's saying, look at all the communities of darkness around you. He's saying it to the Ephesian church. And he's saying it to the church today. He's saying, look at these communities, these dark, lost communities that surround us. And he says, our missional purpose is to go into the dark, broken communities of this world and plant communities of light. So that in every dark community, there is a bright gospel light shining for Jesus Christ. Lighting up the back alleys and the darkened streets. Lighting up dark lives with the transformational message of the gospel as it is preached and as it is lived by God's people in their communities of light. The church is an amazing thing. And in conclusion, I just want to go run through a few things to say. First of all, Ephesians 5 verse 25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You must love the church. The church is a wonderful and amazing thing. God made it. God created it. God died for it. And God now is using it as his central tool for glorifying his son, Jesus Christ, in this world. So, love the church. Secondly, live in godly community with each other. Don't make church a social scene. Don't make church a place where you come to be nice and respectable and comfortable with each other. Make church about godly community. Thirdly, 
please make sacrifices for God. We owe him so much and we give him so little. And he is asking for everything. He wants all of me and everything I have to be given for him, nothing less. And it's the same for you. It may be financial sacrifices. It may be the sacrifice of leaving a big church and starting a small church. It may be the sacrifice of time to walk with lonely, broken people that society has forgotten. It may be the sacrifice of practicing hospitality. It may be the sacrifice of preparing to listen to people being honest with you about where you're walking away from Jesus Christ. But make the sacrifices. Get involved with church planting, please. Church planting is in the DNA of the church. When you read the book of Acts, you realize that there are lots of essential features in the church. Prayer, Bible study, discipleship, church planting. These these were regular features of New Testament churches. So pray for Athol and pray for other new churches out in Nidre or wherever it might be. Support church planting in every way you can. And I would say, if you possibly have the opportunity, get involved in church planting. It's risky, it's challenging, it's hard, but it's so important. And uh, I would say, you know, be prepared to do new things for the kingdom. And be prepared to fail, but never to quit. Often when we do new things for Jesus, we fail. But we don't stop. We pick ourselves up, we learn, we move on. Because we are sharing in the life of God and in his heart for mission. I can't motivate you to mission or to church planting by promising you that you'll enjoy it. I can't motivate you to it by promising that you'll be successful I can't tell you to make sacrifices of time and money and career and personal priorities and say that you will immediately see the blessing if you do it. There's only one thing that will really motivate me and you for mission and for church planting, and that one thing is Jesus Christ. Our motive in giving ourselves is Jesus. Our motive in mission is Jesus Christ. And it's a heart that is smitten with love for Jesus, a heart that's on fire with love for Jesus, that will give everything for the mission of God's church in this world. And I just want to bring you back to Jesus and back to the cross. I don't care if you listen to me of what I say. But I do care that tonight I leave you at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and nowhere else. And I ask you to look to Jesus this evening to see who he really is, to see the reality of what he has done in his death and in his resurrection. And I ask you to allow your own heart to be melted 
and broken by the love of Jesus as you see it at the cross. No one loves you the way Jesus does. And that love is forever. And that love must capture our hearts, capture our imaginations, and capture our lives. I'm going to just pray briefly. I think Paul will come and wrap things up. Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray that uh, we will see how wonderful the church is, and that as we see how wonderful the church is, that we will see the great advantage there is in beginning new churches and multiplying these churches. But we pray that above everything else, we will see tonight how wonderful Jesus Christ is, and that our hearts would belong to Him, and that as we love Christ, we will be moved to serve Christ in this world today, tomorrow, through the coming week and at every opportunity we're given. Amen.